there's certain times that certain songs become an anthem for the church of Jesus Christ. And I think there was a couple of those that we just went through just then. Talking about I'm no longer a slave to fear. We have been in a world that for a couple of years, fear has been the dominant theme. And to be able to look around the room and to see people that, that are standing and they're praising God and they're worshiping him and hands lifted high, we serve an awesome God. Amen? Amen. Also, on the front side of that, we sang a song, Be Thou My Vision. Do you get what that song is saying? At the end of the day, God, let our vision be you. May it be that our vision is not, God, bless what we are doing, but at the end of the day, may our vision end with you. Be thou my vision. Amazing, amazing set of worship. So this morning, I've got a phrase that I want to start with. It is a phrase that is used often within our culture. You might be familiar with it. Here's the phrase. You know my heart in the matter. And that's a phrase that's used in a number of different contexts. But you know when we usually use that phrase? Right after speaking our mind. <laughs> Dropping some truth bombs on some people. Maybe expressing an unpopular view. Or, or here it is, saying something that makes us sound like a jerk, but we don't want people to think we're a jerk. So we share it, and then we cover it up by saying, you know my heart in the matter. The idea behind it is that even though my words might sound harsh, it's coming from a good place. It's coming from my heart. It's coming from a place of truth, a place of rest, a place of wanting what is good and what is right. So the heart refers to the central part of a person. It can describe a person's nature, their character, their inclinations, as well as their feelings. So knowing that, if I were to say, what is God's heart in blank, whatever that might be, what we would be doing in that moment is trying to understand God's perspective based upon his nature and character. Does that make sense? All right, so let's give that a try. What is God's heart for people? And how does that impact the mission of the church? What is God's heart for people? What is his inclination based upon his nature and his character? What is God's heart for people? And how does that impact the mission of the church? So for us to kind of get the conversation going, I'm going to share a number of passages to frame what we're talking about this morning. First one is probably the most well-recognized verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So if you're asking what is God's heart for people in that particular verse, God's heart, his inclination based upon his nature and his character is one of love for people, love for the world. For God so loved the world. That is his heart towards people. In fact, it's so much his heart towards people that he was willing to sacrifice his son for that relationship. Here's another verse. It's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
So God's heart, his inclination based upon his nature and his character is one of patience and kindness towards us. In fact, the text tells us he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, this next one is going to be a little bit longer, but it's worth it. Listen to what this says. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy... What is his nature? What is his character? But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God planned, prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in him. Did, did you get all of that goodness? Did you get God's heart for people in that one section of scripture? His heart for us is one of mercy, of love, forgiveness, salvation, purpose, good, grace. It's a heart of forethought and preparation and relationship. In fact, there are so many other passages that affirm what those passages share, and there's so many others beyond that that give further nuance to God's heart for people. At the end of the day, here's God's heart. He loves people. Here's what God's heart is. He wants the best for people. Here's where God's heart is. He wants relationship with people. If you were to boil down what is God's heart when it comes to people, that's the essence, that's the basics of God's heart for us. Now let's pause for just a moment. Based upon that, what do you think is going through God's mind when you read these verses? Luke chapter 19, verse 41. When he, speaking of Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. What would cause our Savior to weep when he looks at the city? We find out a little bit about what he was seeing specific with Jerusalem in another passage over in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus tells us some of what he saw. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Jesus is looking at the city, and he's looking at the people, and he's noticing their patterns. He's noticing their patterns of rejecting truth and rejecting the prophets and rejecting the very thing that they need the most. And when he's looking at them, there is a protective side that you're seeing of God coming out. And that is, he says, I just wanted to gather your children together and shelter them like a hen who is covering her chicks. God's heart is one for people. Because his heart is for people, Jesus says things like this in John 10.10. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. 
God knows what is best. He wants what is best. And whenever he sees his creation that are being mangled by sin and being hurt by circumstances, when he sees it, it, it moves the heart of God because he wants what is best for people. Seven to eight years ago, God gave me some clarity around the mission of the church and why it is that so few believers live on mission with God. The problem is rarely that people do not know the mission of God to seek and save those who are lost. That's not usually the case. The problem is rarely that a believer would say, I don't think preaching the gospel is important. It's rare that somebody would say, I don't think discipleship is important. It's rare to hear any of that within the conversation. More often than not, the problem is people don't fully have God's heart for people. Listen, it's not that we don't love God and love people. The issue is we don't see what he sees and we don't feel what he feels. So the longer we've been saved, there is a tendency for us to create a safe space around us. And sometimes we do that out of necessity because sometimes it's the best part of wisdom. It's, it's setting proper boundaries. But many times it's not out of wisdom. Many times it is out of fear that broken people are going to mess up our comfort zone. So we keep the broken people at a distance. Do you know when it is that we don't keep broken people at a distance? When that's your child that's broken. When that's your family member who is hurting. When that is those that you love that are outside of the ark of safety. When, when that happens, here's what takes place in our mind. All of a sudden, we start losing sleep. We start praying for that person. We beg God for their heart. We beg God for the difficult conversations. Before we talk to that person, we're like, God, if you give me a chance to be able to get a word of, of scripture in, please give me that chance because our heart is breaking because, listen to this, listen to this, closeness to the person moves our heart for their condition. You know why it is that we don't feel the same thing for a lot of others? because we see them as somebody else's problem. When we see what God sees and we feel what God feels, you don't have to beg believers to stay on mission with God. It's the only thing you can do based upon the burden that he's placed in your heart. So this morning, just know we're getting in some difficult stuff. This is like spiritual heart surgery with the word of God today. My prayer is by the time we finish this text, God would relay his heart for us so that it propels us forward in the mission and the vision that God has given. I invite you, if you would, go with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 9. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, we're in verses 35 through 38. I want us to ask the question, what is God's heart? And specifically, we're talking about what is God's heart for people and how does that impact the mission and the vision of the church? So here's what it says in verse 35 and following. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you once again, recognizing that unless your spirit transforms these words into a message directly in the hearts of your people, God, we just hear a sermon, but we're not changed. God, I'm asking today that you would do something unique in our hearts. For just a moment, would you peel back the layers so that we get a chance to see what you've been seeing since humanity stepped on the scene? God, give us your heart for people. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's message is part two of our vision series. And before we talk about where is God leading, we're taking a Sunday to ask, what is God's heart? I want to find out before we take a step forward, like, where is his heart? If, like the song said, be thou my vision, if, if that's what we want, if on the other end of 20 years of journeying with God, if we want it to be that God is more at the center and God is at the forefront and God is all about what we're chasing after, it has to be that we are pursuing the very things that are on the heart of God. Does that make sense? Okay, thank you for both of you all saying yes on that. So here's what I want to share this morning. I believe without a doubt, Sherwood is at a critical juncture. And it is not because there's problems in the church and the ship is going down and there's issues all around. That, that's not what I mean by this. Here's what I mean by Sherwood is at a critical juncture. Because God's hand of favor has been so heavy for so long on this church, it is easy for us to now play it safe, to rest in what is, and choose not to wade into the deeper waters of faith. And make no doubt about it, God's hand of favor has been heavy on this church. Last week, I tried to capture just a little bit of the snapshot of God's activity over the last 65 years of history. But for a moment, if you consider the facilities, the resources, the people, their giftings, the impact in the community, the reach out into the world, if you think about all the new people that God is bringing in Sunday after Sunday, if you think about the fact that in the last several months, there's been over 120 professions of faith in Jesus Christ right here at Sherwood, if you're to think about the fact that in a year, 2021, of all of the change and all of the transition, in this year, Sherwood recorded its strongest year of giving to the general budget in the history of the church. If you think about just that, it is an understatement for us to say God has blessed this church. We have been swimming in the favor of God. We have been overwhelmed by the glory and the mercy of God. All of that is encouraging, but listen, here's the scary part. Current blessings can be the enemy of future faith. Listen, need is a great motivator to get people to do what we would not normally do. 
When you remove the tension of need, it's easy to stay comfortable. When, when we feel as though, hey, God, the buildings are nice, the air and the heat is on, my friends are here, a lot of times that internal feeling of need can be removed. And when need is removed, it kind of gets us to be calm. It gets us to be settled. Listen, for 23 years of ministry, I've had people say, Paul, just calm down. Listen, I know where he found me. I know what he did for me. I know what he's doing for people. I cannot be calm when there is a gospel that can save, when we have a message that can rescue the perishing and care for the dying, when we got an opportunity to share good news in a world desperate for good news. I can't be calm. So you know what that means? Sometimes veins pop out of my head when I'm preaching. That's my preaching veins. That's passion. When God changes you and you remember where he found you, it moves you forward in the mission of God. Our current blessings can be the enemy of future faith. History shows that when people get used to the activity of God, they lose the wonder of watching their king at work. Nice church services, good ministries, Convention accolades, they create a hesitancy of following God into deeper waters of faith. Because, mark my words, going further with God in the journey is always going to cost us something. And many times it costs us comfort. And sometimes it costs us resources. Always going to cost us time. Always going to cost us prayer. There's a part of moving forward that's going to cost us something. So somebody might say, Paul, with everything God has done, why rock the boat? Why not just enjoy what is? Listen, when we see what God sees and feel what he feels, we can't sit still. We have to be about the mission of God. I want you to look at exactly what Jesus is seeing here. Look back in verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This verse, it gives us a brief summary of Jesus' Galilean ministry. According to the Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, he said there were around 200 cities and villages in the region of Galilee with over 3 million people in population. Look at what he just said in the text. He was going to all the cities and villages. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing every kind of sickness and disease. This is a verse that shows us the extensiveness as well as the emphasis of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's preaching the good news of God's rule and reign on earth. He's healing every kind of sickness and disease. By healing, Jesus is not only showing his love for humanity, but also his power over sickness and disease, as well as it brought verification to the message that he's sharing. Now look at what it says in verses 36 through 38. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Years ago, after a significant amount of time in this text, God placed a very specific prayer on my heart. It's been a prayer that's been a part of my devotional life for at least six, if not seven years. I'm going to be honest, I don't like the prayer. It bothers me when I pray the prayer. Since I've been sharing this with people, I've referred to it as a dangerous prayer. I say it's dangerous because when God answers this prayer, it'll often cause more pain and bring more drama and cause you to get into the mess more than you would ever want to be in in your life. Here's the prayer. God, will you see for me, move in me, and serve through me? God, will you see for me? Will you move in me? Will you serve through me? History is written when dangerous prayers are met with a sovereign God. John Knox, the great reformer of yesteryear, he he was so burdened for his country that his prayer was, give me Scotland or I die. That's a dangerous prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That's a prayer that led to the cross. That's a dangerous prayer. You find later on uh, in Psalm chapter 139 that David, he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's a dangerous prayer. When a person honestly and openly says, God, Look in my heart, look at every crevice of my heart and point out the sin and the bad attitudes and the wrongdoing. You are getting ready for some uncomfortable moments. That's a dangerous type of a prayer to pray. So in light of that, you might think, well, Paul, what you said is not that dangerous. Well, see on the other side of the text. What did Jesus see? If we're saying, God, see for me. What did he see? Because everything is predicated upon what he saw. The first thing I want to say is he saw people. People were constantly around Jesus. Everywhere he went, people flocked to hear him and to see him and to be healed by him. It's possible, though, to be surrounded by people and no longer see people. You know what I mean? It's possible to be in a place where you get used to the drama of those around you. You get used to hearing the stories of divorce. You get used to hearing the stories of addiction. You get used to the stories of families being ripped apart by sin. You get used to that. And even though you're around people, you're no longer seeing people. You're no longer seeing their state and what sin is doing in their hearts. So in this When he saw the people, there's three issues that were hurting them. That is, they were distressed, they were dispirited, and another word we could use here is they were drifting. This word distressed in the text, it has a root meaning of flaying or skinning, harassed, severely troubled. It's also translated as battered, bruised, mangled, ripped apart, worn out, and exhausted. When Jesus saw the crowd, He's seeing people in their true spiritual state. He says they're mangled and they're beat up right now by sin. Sin itself is distorting 
the image in which they were created. Self-effort has led them to being spiritually exhausted and worn out. When he's looking at them, he says, this group is distressed. The next word is dispirited. It means downcast. It's word used of throwing down, utterly helpless, mortally wounded. Get this in your mind. He's looking out and he says, when he saw the crowds, when he saw the people, he says, they are distressed, they're dispirited. He recognizes apart from his work on the cross, they would remain mortally wounded by sin, cast down, unable to pick themselves back up. That's what he's seeing His heart's being moved with compassion in what he's seeing. And finally, he describes them as though they're drifting, like sheep without a shepherd. There's no direction. There's nobody caring for their needs. In fact, he even says at one point that those who were placed there to share the law of God and to share God's heart for people, he said they were putting undue burdens on the people that they were never intended to bear. So even those who are being sent are adding to the fact they're distressed and they're dispirited and they're worn down and they're broken and they're hurting and they're mangled by sin. He's looking at that. He says it's moving him with compassion. More than just seeing a crowd, he saw people. Do you know why it is that we can look at the dysfunction of the world around us in many times we walk away with anger or frustration or fear we're not seeing what God is seeing you know what we're seeing we focus on the manifestations of brokenness and not the people who are broken if we ever flip those two lost people become the enemy as opposed to those that Jesus came to save. Not only did he see the people, but he saw the opportunity. Verse 37, it says, the harvest is plentiful. There's no shortage of hurting people. That's the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. There is no shortage of hurting people. You could throw a rock in any direction, and you can hit 50 people whose lives will be radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no shortage of hurting people. But this is a statement that also has an underlying piece that emphasizes the urgency of the moment. If you'll notice in verses 36 to 37, Jesus changes the metaphor from shepherding to farming. And the word that he uses now is harvest. That is a word that is used in the Bible of those who come to God. They are part of the spiritual harvest. We we understand that. But it's also a word that is used of a period of God's final judgment. There's going to be a time in which it's harvest time, judgment time. It's all coming together. So here's a couple of verses on that. Joel chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Jesus said, the Lord said, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. He says, get ready, nations. Get ready, there's a time, harvest is coming, and I'm going to judge at the harvest. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, we notice that both of the plants are allowed to grow together until the harvest. 
And it's at that time that the tares will be bound and bundled and burned according to Matthew chapter 13. And he goes on in the next few verses to describe his judgment. So in this, a few moments ago, I asked the question of the extensiveness of his ministry. What would it be that would compel someone to go to that many cities, 200 cities and villages, reaching 3 million people, In a a three-and-a-half-year ministry, what would drive someone to work that much and to go that much and to serve that much? What compelled him to move forward? Here it is. Because Jesus understood the impending fate of those apart from the cross. Apart from what he was going to do on the cross, they would remain broken, beaten, bruised, isolated, divided, unsaved. He says, Now is that time. He saw the need, but here's the next piece, in that he says the workers are few. Did you know the problem then is the problem today? Hadn't changed. 2,000 years later, hasn't changed. The problem is not that we don't see the need around us. It's the fact, he says, the workers are few. Opportunities abound. Workers do not. Now, I want to give the benefit of the doubt here. I do. I want to give the benefit of the doubt. I do not believe that any true Christian would ever verbally say, I don't want to be a part of God's mission. The rest of the world can go to hell. I've never heard a believer say that. What we say is far more palatable and even sounds reasonable. What we say is, I'm really busy at work right now. And when things calm down there, I will join in with the mission of God. We say things like, when the kids are out of school this summer, I'll have more time on my hands to be able to serve. What we say is, when I get back from this family vacation, that's when I'm going to get plugged into the local church. What we say is, whenever I finish with the things that I'm doing right now, I promise I'm going to go share the gospel with my neighbor who's lost. Great intentions, but you know what happens along the way? Life. Life has a crazy way of bringing another issue, something else that seems important, something else on your calendar, and before you know it, days slip into weeks, Weeks move into months, months move into years, and people move into a Christless eternity all around us. And all the while, we're saying, starting next week, give me two months and I'll join in. When we see what he sees and feel what he feels, we will stop saying, when things calm down, I'll join. We simply go before God and say, God, whatever it takes, use me. I know it's going to be uncomfortable and it might be inconvenient. Use me. God, I don't even know where to begin, but my yes is on the table. God, use me. He saw their need. I want you to notice something else here. He saw the solution What's the solution? 
you would think that the rest of the verse would go like this. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, now go out and get to work. That's what you would think it's saying. But that's not what it says. Verse 38 is, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Our first responsibility is not go and do, but start in prayer. How will we know where to go unless we start in prayer? How do we know what to do unless we start in prayer? How will we ever have God's heart unless we start in prayer? How will we position ourselves before the throne of God in the right way unless we start in prayer? The issue is not, will we go do? When you get before God and say, God, I'm willing, would you send out labors? It is not long before God begins to tug at your heart and say, now it's time for you. It's not an either or. It's not you pray and let somebody else do it. It's you start in prayer and it leads out into action. For over 20 years, I've prayed a very specific prayer for the churches that God has allowed me to pastor. This is one that I pray almost daily for the last 20 years. It's one that's on our corporate prayer sheet. Here's my prayer. God, bring us the lost and laborers. Now listen, I'm fully aware of the fact the Great Commission is go. But as you go, you got to bring them in somewhere. And my prayer is, God, may lost people know that they are welcomed and going to be loved when they come into this church. May it be that when somebody in the community doesn't know where they turn for help, they recognize that billboard that's all around town, Sherwood loves Southwest Georgia. And they say, that's a place I can go. I'm praying, God, bring us the lost. Here's what happens when lost people come. Things get messy. we got to be all right with that. So here's the next thing I'm praying. God, bring us laborers. Bring us workers. Bring us people who are tired of sitting on the sidelines of kingdom activity. Bring us the people who want to use their spiritual gifts for the glory of God. Bring me the senior adults who might say, I got five years maybe left before I see my Savior face to face, and I want to spend every second on mission with God. Bring us the people who are saying, God, use me to my fullest. here's, here's, Here's my prayer. Here's my prayer. Here's my prayer. Here's my prayer. Listen, listen. Here's my prayer. My prayer is one day, At 145 years old, God takes me home. And when he does, it will be at the end of a message after preaching of the glory of God, and I drop dead right there. That's how I'm praying God's going to take me home. Now, here's what I don't want, and this is also, this is a concern of mine. I don't want to be taken home off the back of a golf cart, spending my last 20 years not serving on mission with God, but serving myself and my own desires. If we see what he sees and feel what he feels, and we are bold enough and crazy enough to say, God, serve through me, he will keep dropping us into places where we get a chance to be used of God. The question is, do we want that? You can preach on prayer all day long, and people will amen it. But when you say amen on the other side of work prayers, there needs to be a hoe in our hand. We need to say, God, put me to work. And if our Christianity 
never moves outside the walls of this church, we have missed the gospel of Jesus Christ. It moves the people of God to be on mission for him. So for most of you, this is not the first time you've ever heard this text. Chances are you've probably read the text a dozen or so times. There's a really good chance that you've heard a number of messages on this particular text. But you know when it is that most of us remember to pray for laborers to be sent into the harvest? Usually when we're serving in a ministry and we're shorthanded. And all of a sudden we're like, where's everybody at? God, bring some workers. Here's another time we pray for laborers. When God gives us the clarity in a moment of recognizing somebody slipping out into eternity apart from Christ, and there's almost a judgment day clarity that God gives where it's like, I need to be praying for more people to work the fields. Now is a time that if we're not careful, we can be lulled to sleep in our Christian cocoons based on what God has done instead of saying, God, I'm willing to wade into the messes to keep moving forward. God, will you see for me, move in me, and serve through me? So here's how we're leaving things today. I simply want to leave things encouraging you to pray. I'm encouraging you to sit with this text and pray and ask God, how does he want you to respond? I don't want you to pray that dangerous prayer quickly without thinking through it. I want you to sit with it. I want you to pull out the implications of what that might mean. Go to worst case scenario. That's where you're going anyway. Go to worst case scenario in your mind and say, if I pray this prayer, four months from now, I'm going to be in the Amazon serving on the mission field. Go ahead, go there in your mind. That's okay. Here's what I can tell you. If that's what God calls you to, it'll be the most exciting adventure of your life, and you will thank him for it. More often than not, here's what God's going to do. He'll open your eyes to see those coworkers that you've been sitting with every day and not thinking about. He'll open your eyes to see your neighbors. He'll open your eyes to see the city that we're in right here. And when he opens our eyes, he begins to burden our heart. And when he burdens our heart, there's a prompting and a conviction that comes with it. And if we're willing, we submit before him and we say, God, use me. Here's my question. Who's got the trailer park ministry in Albany? Who's going to the areas that nobody else wants to go to right now? Who's burdened for the sex slave workers? Who's burdened right now for those in foster care and those in adoption? Who's got a burden for those who are addicted in the city? Who's got a burden for those who are maybe in another part of town and maybe they've got a great life but you recognize they have no purpose in their life? Who has eyes on them? Somebody might say, I see it, but maybe somebody else should do it. No, if God shows you, there's a really good chance he's burdening you. You're like, I, I don't have anything in common. Do you have the gospel? You got something in common. Have you sinned? You got something in common. 
Have you experienced brokenness? You got something in common. The issue is it is level ground at the foot of the cross. Will we be willing to live on mission with God? So this last week, and I'm going to close here in just a moment. This last week, Hans Wunsch from the Mallory Association sent me some demographic information about a five-mile radius right around Sherwood. I've taken some time this last week to read over an extensive amount of this information. There's one statistic that jumped off the page. Based on 2021 data, it doesn't get a whole lot more fresh than 2021 data right now. 72.3% of people in a five-mile radius of Sherwood are not involved in any religious community or congregation. 72.3%. That is not another city. That is not another country around the world. That is right here, five-mile radius, almost 75% of people in a five-mile radius of Sherwood are not involved in any community of faith. According to research by Tom Rayner and Lifeway, 82% of the unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend church if they're ever invited. Only 2% of church members ever invite an unchurched person to come with them. And another study indicates that of 15,000 adults, two-thirds are willing to receive information about a church or from a family member or a close friend. Put all that together. Over 50% of people that are around us are at least okay with somebody inviting them to church. Many times it's not the fact that they've not been invited and they just don't want to come. Sometimes they've never been invited. Sometimes, you know as well as I do, it's the moment the invitation comes, depending on the circumstances of a person's life, as to whether or not what is being offered seems appealing to that person in the moment. Sometimes it comes back to a church being burdened enough to say, we're willing to go, we're willing to serve, we're willing to reach out. So here's what I'm asking. Prayer. Pray for the lost and laborers. Pray for wisdom for Sherwood's leadership. As we're at this critical time, pray that God gives us wisdom, eyes to see what he is doing. Pray about personal involvement. This is a time. Ask God how he wants you to be involved in his mission. Pray for the courage and opportunity to invite others. And if God so prompts, pray a dangerous prayer with me. God, will you see for me and move in me and serve through me? Think for a moment of where things could be 20 years from now if a hundred people in this room started praying that prayer and living like that. Think where things could be if a thousand people in this room would be on the same page. My purpose today, I know it sounds strange based on what you heard. My purpose was not to give you a Bible beat down. My purpose today is to say, if we never see the heart of God, the mission of the church only feels like extra work. When you see his heart, you understand why he calls us to the ends of the earth. So I'm going to ask you if you would, wherever you're at, just bow your heads for just a moment. I'm going to ask if the band 
would come forward at this time. I'm going to ask if the pastors would go and take their places at the end of the aisles. I want us to end this service in a way in which we're going before God and saying, God, what in my heart are you wanting to point out so that I would more fully live on mission with you? I've already brought it up again, that, that song, Be Thou My Vision. At the end of the day, at the end of 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, at the end of that time, may it lead more fully into the presence of God than ever before. May there be tens of thousands of people who say, I met my Savior because somebody from this church cared enough to share the gospel with me. May there be generations coming after us of young people that are going to college campuses on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing God has gifted them and called them to live on mission with him. May it be that we're seeing churches that are planted all around this area. May it be that we live on mission. May it be that 10 years from now, we can look back and say that there's hundreds of thousands, if not more, who are now walking in step with the, the God of the universe because people cared enough to pray a dangerous prayer. Here's, here's what I know. Unless God moves in our heart and the Spirit of God moves in this church for that, it will never happen. Apart from God's activity, it won't happen. So we need God to bring us back to what worship is all about. Bring us back to what our focus has to be for us to stay on mission with Him. So I'm going to pray, and after I pray, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing and the altars are going to be open. It might be today that you want to know more about how you can have a personal relationship with God. If that's the case, I want to encourage you to come. You might need prayer. I want to encourage you to come. It might be that you want information about how you can be a part of Sherwood. If that's the case, come talk to one of these pastors. The invitation will be open. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we are more desperate for your spirit to move in this place now than we've ever been. God, apart from you working in individual hearts and moving us onto your page, it's entirely too easy for us to just stay comfortable. God, I pray that you would do something that my words could never do. God, may your spirit bring movement and sight and compassion and mission into the hearts of your people. God, start with me in that. God, unless you open my eyes every single day, all I see is work at certain points. God, I need to see people the way you see people. Lord, may you move as only you can, and may our hearts be pulled to you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand as we sing.